Welcome to Future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, and together we'll explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Future of XYZ is presented in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode 10, season four, which also happens to be episode 100 of Future of XYZ. And we are going to be speaking today about a very, very, very big future of topic, the future of the internet. David Kirkpatrick, thank you for being our guest on this episode. Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. It's fun to be here. It is a big topic. It's a very big topic. And as we always have, not a huge amount of time, but your expertise is is so distinguished in this field. I'm really happy to have you on. Uh, not only are you the founder of Techonomy, um, which obviously is a conference and digital media company at the intersection of the internet, um, technology, business, um, and and social progress, which I, of course, appreciate. You served as editor-in-chief there for 12 years. Uh, before that, you were 25 years at Forbes, where you founded and hosted uh, their brainstorm Fortune. series. At Fortune. Sorry, I said Forbes. Fortune. <laughs> Uh, I have written for Forbes, but I was a Fortune all that time. Very, very different magazines, but thank you for correcting me. I have written a number of books. You're writing a new book right now focused on climate tech. You've written a lot about Mark Zuckerberg, which you and I share an opinion about and uh, how we originally connected. Um, But, you know, I think besides being a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and doing all sorts of other stuff, your passion and expertise in the space that is the Internet is why we're going to be talking about the future of the Internet. Um, I want to just start, as I always do, with the very foundational question of, like, what is the Internet? Like, in 2023, how do we define it? Wow, that's a that's a tough one at the moment. Um, the, the Internet is obviously an interconnection, interconnected set of nodes, of digital nodes that uh, uh, spans literally the entire planet and even outer space. It's a, a system that was initially invented by the military for... Uh, nuclear war protection of survivability but it has become i would say in, in common parlance the platform of global communication um it is the interstitial tissue that unites humanity which which is a crazy 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 kind of broad definition but i appreciate it and i want to talk about how that interconnection um works because we obviously do during covid really saw how global and, and, and globally dependent we are and how shared the experience on this tiny little planet is and the internet as a role. I, I think what's fascinating to me about the, the the way that the internet has progressed. I mean, in 1981, the first personal computer was introduced. That's only 42 years ago, you know? That's like after, after I mean, I'm older than a personal computer, you know? And yet in our little pockets today with our little phones, you know, we carry more processing power than what NASA had to send the various Apollo missions to the moon. I mean, the internet seems like, frankly, it's kind of akin to fire or the printing press or airplanes. Like, I mean, is this one of the greatest inventions or innovations of man? Oh, absolutely. The internet is one of the greatest inventions of, of all time and, and one of the most transformative technology phenomena of our of not only our lifetime, but of really the history of humanity. However, I just want to make one thing clear. When you say we, you've got to always remember, and this is the key fact that Americans are very bad at remembering, that over two and a half billion people are still unconnected from the internet. That is hard to conceive given the degree to which we live on this medium, 
But that is, it is not all of humanity. And that is a global crisis. It's just worth mentioning. Well, and it's, I think it's six, I think you're exactly correct. At the beginning of this year, it's 5.16 billion people are actually connected to the internet, which actually only amounts to like two thirds of the world's population. I mean, that's, and, and in America, in rural America, where you don't have broadband or it's certainly not 5G, this it becomes a crisis, right? Uh, in many places of, of access, of equity, um, of opportunity. Yeah, I think the U.S. is doing better slowly, and there's a lot of movement right now to to extend connectivity to more broadly to the rural areas, et cetera. But uh, it's really those two and a half billion people that I worry about because they are not part of the global economy and they know they know it. So that's a that's a that's an issue. But I I know that's not our main topic here. But uh, it is as as superbly important, uh, life altering for all of us. it's so all-encompassing in its impact on our lives that it is very difficult sometimes to even assess it because it is like the air we breathe, as I think you said. So, uh, But it isn't, of course. It's actually a, a human-made and managed uh, system that has flaws and poses risks of dysfunction and failure that we cannot disregard. Well, I, I I couldn't agree more. And it leads really nicely because on the one hand, there's this positive effect, especially for the 66% of the world who's connected in terms of education, access, research, all these things, you know, efficiency, frankly, since that's what we always think about in capitalistic terms, you know, but there are also real threats and in growing ones in terms of privacy and security risks, obviously the mental health component, especially for kids of over screen time of social media, um, what are some of the biggest kind of, let's call them risks and o- challenges and, and opportunities that the Internet poses for our immediate future in, in your expert opinion? You're very good at asking big questions. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the risks are not unconnected to what we were discussing before about those who are disconnected, because even those who are connected, many of them are relatively new users of a medium that they don't really understand. Uh, and that's not true only in the developing world. It's also true in, in many in, in the developed world. It also you even include young people who come on. They think they know the, 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 the sea they swim in. But in reality, they have no sense of the power of the medium that they participate in once they join TikTok or Instagram or or WhatsApp or whatever. So uh, the risks uh, to even just to list them is, is it's a could be a long list. I mean, disinformation certainly comes to mind very quickly. And you know, I wrote a book about Facebook, as you mentioned, and, you know, I do see Facebook as having been very culpable in uh, changing the information landscape to legitimize uh, a kind of irrational opinionizing that is now more or less universal. So everybody thinks they're an expert and they don't really recognize or respect authority uh, authority and, and the sources of information that are validated and checked. And so we have a rampant spread of, of fake news is just the sort of symptom, but the disease is uh, failure to understand the world, failure to understand democracy and the systems that do determine the actual physical functioning of society. And I think the Internet, while it also radically, vastly improves the functioning of many of those systems, uh, a, a gigantic risk that has emerged is that it, uh, it it undermines people's effective participation 
in governance, uh, whether it's democracy or any other form of governance, really. I mean, uh, ironically, we, I know we're not going to talk very much about China, but one of the things about China that's always impressed me was that until recently, all of its leaders have been PhD engineers who actually understood how technology and the internet worked better than leaders of other governments, which is one reason they knew they had to build a great firewall and they had to control the four sources of information if they were going to retain their disproportionate power of the minority that the Communist Party represents. And, and I sort of respect that in a, in a way. Uh, but our government, most governments don't understand. That's another big risk is that the, this, the, the nature of the technology's evolution and its speed, which is probably the single biggest thing happening right now, is just the speed of change driven by technology platform change. Yes. Uh, governments simply cannot keep up. And that worries me. That is one of the biggest things that's happening now is this disequilibrium between Completely. the pace of change and government's ability to understand. Completely. I mean, I I'm, I, I, I wanted I so badly want to dive into this rabbit hole with you. Um, I will just say that a few years ago when Sheryl Sandberg, who's no longer at Meta, it was still called Facebook at the time. And Mark Zuckerberg showed up in front of Congress was to me one of the most shocking and embarrassing moments in our kind of modern history of our government not understanding the basic workings of the world's largest media technology company. And I think you're correct that this is a huge risk of the disequilibrium. And the internet has brought about kind of the rise of these super corporations, as well as these megalomaniacs like uh, Mark Zuckerberg, or, uh, uh, Elon Musk, who control major access you know, to the world's information, as you said, as well as the human's connectivity. So I think that there is, um, you know, I don't know if that's inevitable with this disequilibrium, if you will, or how we manage kind of this outsized power um, and, and cult of personality, frankly. Well, let's be clear. We don't know how to manage it. Uh, the governor, the people who run those companies don't really, in many cases, know how to manage it. Uh, governments don't know how to oversee it. Uh, in a sense, we are being, you know, uh, the tail is wagging the dog and our, our creation is is manipulating us beyond our capacity to, to react. And obviously, our artificial intelligence and generative AI is compounding that problem right now to a, a substantial degree. Ab absolutely. You know, I want to come back to the pace of change. I mean, I call it exponentialization. I mean, because it's so the pace is ready. But I think back, you know, in 1965, you know, uh, Gordon Moore, who was the founder of Intel, came up with this thing that came to be known as Moore's Law. And he suggested that microprocessing memory or the number of transactions on any given microchip would be doubling every two years while the price of computers would be cut in half. So this kind of inverse relationship. You have Ray Kurzweil, I don't know how to say his last name, Kurzweil. Yeah. And, and he, he wrote this amazing book about the singularity, right? And he talks about like the singularity is basically define Moore's law, that we are going way past Moore's law and we actually don't know how to manage that. And I think his, his visual on it is so relevant, which is it's like climbing to the top of a mountain and being handed a jetpack when you get to the top and just going, you know, straight vertical. And that exponentialization of change you know, since the Intel 404s, the first microprocessor was introduced in 1971, is in fact driving, as you said, the potential demise of democracy through misinformation, disinformation, connectivity, all these negative things, but also all the positive. So, I mean, are there other changes right now that you see happening in 
the space of the internet rich lar- writ large that are really going to impact the future of you know human brains, corporations, the world at large? Well, I mean, one of the things about generative AI right now, which of course is the topic du jour, and and rightly so, um, is that we don't even really understand how it works. So we've passed into a new phase of technology management and tech and technology human impact in that now our most powerful tools are to some extent beyond our comprehension, even though they haven't yet reached the point where they are smarter than us, which many AI researchers worry about very actively. Um, But part of what it represents to me, and I just don't think we can underscore it enough, is the pace of change driven by technological connectivity is outpacing our ability to really adapt as as humanity and 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 that is again compounded by the fact that there's a three two and a half billion people being sort of dragged along but you know without even seeing it and not even having the ability to make the same mistakes we're making um but uh, you've got to recognize and and underscore that this generative ai transformation and ai generally is a fundamental new phase of the internet's evolution Mm -hmm and one that we are only beginning to take stock of, which has spectacularly positive potentiality, as well as very, very frightening possible downsides. I probably am a little more on the optimist side. Yeah, I'm like 55% optimistic about AI's long-term prognosis, but uh, I too recognize tremendous risks. You know, that people think AI could destroy humanity literally and not very far in the future if we don't get a grip on it which we will not do but that's scary that that is very scary i i want to i want to um i I mean there's there's so many threads here that i could pull out david but i you know i'm always cognizant of time and i like the 55 percent optimism and one of the places you've invested that optimism i think is into this climate tech one of the things that's always not always but since 10 years ago when I started learning about like data centers, these air conditioning, these huge energy sucks, you know, and they place these, you know, things up in, you know, rural areas or not so rural areas. You know, there's a whole thing about like, you know, imminent domain type behavior um, of these tech companies. But generally we're talking about what the processing power requires in terms of demands on our energy. And of course, until we transition to fully green energy, we are just sucking you know, we're, we're, we're hurting ourselves the more data we use. And I think, you know, in 2010, Google's co-founder, Eric Schmidt, declared we were creating more data every two days than we had in the whole history of the human race up until that moment. And so I think what's amazing about that is that we are, and then that didn't account for AI, that doesn't account for blockchain and crypto, that doesn't account for VR, AR, that doesn't account for all of these newer technologies of that are facilitated by the internet that are just sucking energy and i don't know if we have any innovation in the horizon line that is going to help offset that so in your mind's eye where you're investing this what are the actions that are needed to mitigate the climate effects of the internet and and how can we do better well i think we will do better even though a huge amount of energy is being squandered and 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 very poorly utilized in managing today's internet particularly in the mining of cryptocurrencies and bitcoin in, in specific 
uh, that's that's unconscionable to some degree. Uh, when I said 55% optimism, though, that was really about generative AI. And the macro level, I'm much more than 55% optimistic about the future of humanity, although one has to sort of leaven it with this AI risk. But I still am very optimistic that we can address our problem. And one reason I am optimistic, even specifically about our potential to act in on the climate rapidly enough, relatively rapidly enough, mm -hmm. and there's plenty of caveats here, we're not going to talk about that, but is that technology is going to be a much more effective tool to address our problems than most people realize. Like, here's just an example, and, and this is where generative AI is such a yin and yang thing. I just saw today an article that was estimating that for most software programming tasks, generative AI will allow programmers to accomplish roughly 40% of the work without doing anything other than using AI. So that means, you know, a 40% increase in the speed of programming for any problem. Many, many, many of our global climate problems and our national problems of all sorts, but especially in climate, will require software evolution and innovation, which now will happen faster. Um, you know, Moore's law, which you mentioned, is still happening in some sense. And uh, th that is going to be an incredible gift to humankind. And we cannot overlook that, which is easy to do. Uh, it doesn't mean that we just sit back and let it happen, obviously. It has to be our harnessed willfully. And absolutely, the United States and, and most developed countries, most countries everywhere still are not harnessing technology for climate action nearly as much as they need to. But I believe, especially if the will can be found, the technology will follow that really achieves many of man mankind's goals. But yeah, that doesn't mean we'll stay below 1.5 degrees. It, it does mean that we will probably be able to continue ha inhabiting our planet. Um, whether the Gulf Stream stops or some horrible thing like that, you know, we, we can't predict. But I am very optimistic about our adapt ad adaptability if we can recognize the power of technology and and again, if governments and business can work together much more effectively than they have done up to now, because I see that as absolutely indispensable, and, and it is is sort of one of our big challenges of the moment, is figuring out it with AI, with climate tech, et cetera, government and business have to partner better. And just a final quick note on that, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States was a major step in that direction. I, I totally agree. Um Let's talk really briefly, and then I want, we're going to have to wrap, which is tragic, actually, as 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 your expertise and and passion for this subject is so is so apparent. But let's talk quickly about government oversight and regulation today, and what's needed in the future. It's clear that we don't have time to wait for governments, not just the U.S. government, but any government other than China. And frankly, that's a whole different topic to become informed enough. For regulation, as you say, the t for the tail not to be wagging the dog, what is the role then of regulation and and governmental oversight of the internet and all of its aspects as we look towards the future? It's a very hard question. I mean, Europe has led the way in thinking through what is possible, and they continue to do so with some regulatory approaches that I generally applaud. I think they've had global influence in a good way for the most part. 
Uh, I do think we need to go to a new phase of government tech interaction, which not enough people are really contemplating. Brett Smith, who is the president of Microsoft, is one who's talked about this very extensively, and I agree with them heartily. We need to have far more organized dialogue, uh, colloquies at the highest level between government and business leaders and senior tech experts on how tech and government should collaborate, because it's really going to have to be collaboration. Government's not going to be able to come in and, and tamp things down at the pace that will be needed. And that might not be right anyway. And especially, you know, you don't want to de deter innovation, but you don't want to allow ineffective or fail, you know, dangerous innovation to run rampant. And this is really, really hard, really, really hard. Europe has a huge directorate of tech experts that advise the European Commission, which we don't even have in the United States. Newt Gingrich eliminated the te Congressional Technology or a Budget or Technology Office, whatever it was called. So, you know, our government is to some extent, you know, driving blind. Uh, military tends to be where the most of the expertise is in, in the intelligence Completely area. Blind, blind. Uh, but, but there are a lot of pockets developing in the Department of Energy and elsewhere that are very impressive. But no, this is an unresolved question that um, has to take the attention of leaders in both government and business much more than it has. That's all I can really say. It's, it's a huge challenge. Yep. I, I, I appreciate the honesty of that answer and couldn't agree more that that partnership and, and getting informed. I mean, it's it's the first step towards anything, right? Getting educated, getting informed. There's one thing I want, I was hoping to say before I wanted to say before we end. I wrote a piece for Techonomy in 2017 about Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And the headline was, too big to tolerate, too big to stop. And that is still the situation we are in. And it's very scary. The power those companies have really is irrational from a societal standpoint, from a citizen's point of view. They should not have so much unchecked power. One person like Mark Zuckerberg should not have so much authority over human dialogue and news dis dissemination, etc. But we still haven't addressed that problem. But it's been that way for a long time. Like I said, I wrote that in 2017. Um, I appreciate that point. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very valid one. Talks to a lot of the pieces that we're, we've, we've tried to pull together in this conversation. So I guess as we, as we end, David, with um, the future of the internet, I have to look ahead. The future of the internet. You've, you've kind of alluded to some of this, but if you were to say, what is your greatest hope for the internet in say twenty years time? What is your greatest hope? Wow. Well, first of all, that all humans would be on it, whatever it is. That's first. That would be critical. Um, I, we, have, we haven't even talked about mobile. That's obviously a massive influential factor in all of this and a critical piece of the ecosystem. Uh, I do believe we are moving toward a sort of augmented reality world where everything in the world will be essentially annotated and we will see through some kind of glasses or other tools uh, that will allow us to interact much more intelligently with the natural world. I would hope that we have sophisticatedly applied AI to manage human systems to eliminate our carbon uh, and methane generation so that we can continue to inhabit the planet and that the internet would have been useful for that. I hope that it would have become a more effective global medium for education. Uh, forget about entertainment, that's going to be a given. Um, but I think all these things are possible. Um, but, but 20 years is so long in 
technology terms that honestly, it's very, very perilous to even try to hypothesize what might be happening by then. Uh, I will just, I'd like to say by finishing in a sense that I remain optimistic that if governments and business and public citizens, civil society can collaborate more effectively, which I don't necessarily assume is possible, but I hope it's possible. I think it's conceivable. We can make this continued acceleration of the pace of living driven by technology more than tolerable. Let's just put it that way. I do believe that. More than tolerable. That's that is um that is that is David Kirkpatrick, expert in everything internet uh, and technologies. Greatest hope. I appreciate David so much you joining us on this special 100th uh, anniversary episode of Future of XYZ. Thank you, Lisa. For everyone watching, you should know that you can also listen anywhere you get your podcast. Just search for Future of XYZ and leave us a five star review so that everyone else can find us. If you are listening, you can also watch this podcast um, at uh, ripbs.org forward slash XYZ. Make sure you follow us at Future of XYZ on Instagram, uh, and you can visit us and nominate guests or yourself at future-of.xyz. We are so thrilled you listen. Thank you for participating. And David Kirkpatrick, thank you for this conversation on the future of the internet. Thank you again. It was really a good conversation.